Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Scott Soshner. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Tripling Down on Women's Pro Hockey Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. All right, today's guest, John Boynton uh, of the Premier Hockey Federation, investor in three of the six teams. John, I know you listen to the pod, so how would you rate Eben's opening there? You know I do this week to week. I'm, I'm highly critical of Mr. Novi Williams. What do you, what do you score him? I, I like it because, one, it's not as corny as some of yeah, them. Yeah, you go. <laughs> Love it. Two, it, uh, I like the fact that you took my statement about doubling down, and he actually took it one step farther to say tripling down. So I like Novi Williams like always, always takes it. sounds it. like an A to me. Yeah, he, and, and let's start with impressive right now. I'm going to read from your bio, if that's okay, from uh, from Firehouse Capital. Here, here's your bio. I love this. Invested member. His career was shaped by a trip to the Soviet Union during his junior year in high school, studying Russian language at the time. I will say to you, Ochen Harasho, Don John Boynton. Очень хорошо. Я тоже говорю по-русски. Я не говорю по-русски, я не понимаю. Как вы говорите по-русски? Evan didn't know this about me. Evan didn't know this about me. I'm stunned right now. Scott, I think I know everything about you. I did not know that about you. 15 years sitting next to each other, I still can surprise you, Mr. Novi Williams. I took a year of independent study, Russian, and boy, the minute they tell you there's a different verb to go one way versus two ways, one way by car, two ways on feet, I knew this wasn't for me. But but if you hang around enough hockey locker rooms, and, and as a listener of the pod, John, you know my son is a high-level hockey player. And I told Evan, I actually stumbled into, I believe it was the first women's hockey game at Chelsea Piers in Stanford. My son was playing on one rink. We came out. We're like, what's going on in the other rink? And we went to go check it out. Um, Angela Ruggiero, friend of the pod, friend of everything. Uh, I mean, just so I know it wasn't your trip to hockey that really won you over on women's hockey or your trip to the Soviet Union. But did that have any impact at all in seeing hockey in Russia? Um, I would say that my experience in Russia um, has uh, made me very comfortable taking big risks. And um, and I, I fell in love with the culture of that country, with that language and that. You know, my website's not exaggerating. That really did set the course for my career. And um, I'm actually headed over again on February 6th. I'm still deeply involved over there. Um, I actually had the opportunity last February when I was there to meet the guy who uh, oversees the KHL uh, for, the, for, the, for Russia. And uh, we talked about the opportunity to maybe bring their, what they call the, 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 the Women's Hockey League, their WHL, together with our league. And let's see if we can't have a little, 
um, kind of uh, ambassador ambassadorial work between the two countries because uh, I think the country's relations are not in a great place right now. Hockey could bridge that gap. So uh, we'll see if, uh, if that materializes. There's the, uh, there's the understatement of the day, John. Like, gloss notes on ice. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we can get to hockey in a second, but I'm, I'm curious, given that you do a lot of business in Russia, is, is right now a tenuous time? Is this an opportunistic time? What is uh, kind of the, as you referenced to, the, the geopolitical situation right now, what does that mean for, for, for American business over there? Well, I, I think we're all on pins and needles. Uh, the last thing anybody wants to see is, uh, is war. Personally, I don't think it'll come to that. But, uh, but I think anyone who uh, has any uh, interaction with Russia, whether business or personal, it's an uneasy time. So, so you, you, you spend a lot of time in Russia, uh, built businesses uh, in Russia. How do you get involved in professional women's hockey? So, um, Scott, you said at the beginning that, that we're going to talk about hockey because I'm a hockey player. I'm actually not a hockey player. My wife is a hockey player. Uh, my wife played in college. Uh, she, she was one of the pioneers. Uh, we both graduated from Harvard in 1988. Uh, but she was uh, recruited to play in 1984 and graduated in 88 with me. And uh, so she was there at the very beginning. And uh, she stayed involved as an alumna uh, from that point forward. So we, uh, we've always known the Harvard women's hockey team. And uh, she also was a high school coach. And she, she coached with a woman named Katie Stone. Katie Stone has been the Harvard coach now for 27 years. And uh, they coached together at a place called Tabor Academy. Katie got the call to Harvard. Joanna got the call to a different boarding school. So I think Katie got the better end of that bargain. But when Katie was named the coach of the U.S. women's national team in the lead up to the Sochi Olympics in 2014, she called us. Uh, we live west of Boston, and the team was going to be training in Bedford at a place called The Edge. And uh, she asked us if we had any, any ideas on where she could house her players. And so we arranged billet families for 10 of the national team players. So Julie Chu, who was a fourth-time fourth Olympian that year, she lived with us for six months. Brie McLaughlin, one of the goaltenders, lived down the street. Uh, Hillary Knight, Kendall Coyne, um, Lise Deckline, 10 of the players, and a bunch of the players were on, on this year's team, actually. Uh, they lived in and around us uh, for six months. And so we ended up bringing the family uh, to, to, to Sochi in 2014 to watch the games. But this was the first time we came to really understand in a very personal way the gap between the way elite men and elite women's athletes are treated. What was the women's professional scene like back in 2014? So there was no pay, paying league. There was something called the CWHL, uh, which had been around for a long time, but it didn't pay its players. Um, at that time, though, the, the, the catalyst for us to get involved was seeing that um, about two-thirds of the players on the team um, had parents who could not afford to go to Russia to see them play in the Olympics. You think about what that means to a player and to her family who've done everything to get her to that point. Uh, to, to, to not have your parents be able to watch you would be crushing, right? And uh, so we went to USA Hockey and said, hey, guys, can't you fund this? They said, we don't do that yet. That's not the kind of program that we're able to operate. Well, what do you do for the men? Well, it's the NHLPA that pays for the men. Okay, so we understood it wasn't USA Hockey's responsibility so all the billet families and we stepped forward and we did a, bit, bit of, did a big fundraiser and we raised enough money to enable all those families to travel to Sochi. And uh, so that was really the first time that we understood, again, the, 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 the scale of the inequity. And so it wasn't until uh, really two years ago, someone approached us and said, uh, this guy named Miles Arnone is buying one of the NWHL teams. The league has decided to uh, kind of leave its single entity model behind and start to sell off its teams. 
would you guys want to get involved? And so we, we jumped at the opportunity. So the short answer to your question, Scott, is it's my wife's fault. Hey, I use that all the time. Uh, you know, I, I know of what you speak. You know, Eben knows this, and you're a listener. I often reference my son. You know, he's a he's a high level AAA player for the Mid Fairfield Junior Rangers, and yeah, I mean, I'm in the car all the time. Uh, recently, you know, off in Detroit, where I, I I probably should have Massachusetts residency by now, by how much time I spend driving up there and playing. I can only imagine. Then you get to that next level. I mean, I, I would suspect that the the billet players probably become an extended part of the family. No? I mean, this is more than just sort of a business transaction. You're not just helping out. Th these folks, like, they, they drive your kids to practice. They, they, they really become ingrained in the family. Yeah, no, I mean, that year, my daughter was playing on the varsity softball team for the first time. Um, Julie Chu used to come to the games. Um, she came to see all my kids. I've got four kids. They're all athletes. And, um, and so we would have multiple Olympians coming to high school games or middle school games. It, it was awesome. And, um, and yeah, it's a, I really do feel like they're part of the family. I mean, every night we had, I always say, we had, you know, one to 20 players around the dinner table, depending on what was going on. And uh, it was really a special opportunity for my kids to be able to see how these athletes train, how they think, you know, how they prepare. It's really, um, it, it was really helpful to them in their own development as, as athletes. So how do you pitch that experience now to potential fans of, of women's hockey? How do you make sure that, that, that this league, as it continues to change, as it continues to grow, is able to make sure more and more people get the experience that you had kind of firsthand and up close? Yeah, I, th I think something that distinguishes women's athletes versus you know, some of the men is that the women are clearly not in it for the money right? They haven't, they haven't made the big money. They're actually, in many cases, doing it in spite of the meager money. Um, they have to sacrifice so much to be able to pursue the game they love. And so when you see that kind of passion, those are the kind of stories that we need to be able to tell, that we need to make accessible to our fans. You know, that's, that's the platform we're trying to build is a, is a platform to tell those stories. Because when you get to know some of these athletes, and a lot of it happens on social media these days, but when you get to know some of the stories behind the athlete. It just, it's super inspiring. Now there are passion plays and I guess that this is one for you, but at the end of the day, if I flip over the napkin or the envelope as, as Evan and I like to reference, it has to pencil out, right? So can, can you walk me through on a macro level, the initial business plan of, of women's hockey, and we will get to sort of the news uh, of recent events of, of that investment that's being made, but that initial investment and the ROI and, and the path to sustainability. How did that pencil out? So, yeah, so um, we got involved in a league that was already pre-existing and it was evolving from a single entity model, meaning that the league owned all the teams to what's called the joint venture model. Now, one of, one of the reasons of single entity is actually cost control. MLS started in that way and there were multiple owner or teams of mo one owner for multiple teams. So it is a cost control measure. But at some point, like you said, you are ready to spread your wings and, and go into the different model. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I think I think that from a cost control standpoint, single entity is, good, is very good. But from a revenue generation standpoint, I don't believe it's as effective. I also think that if you really want to be able to lavish love and attention on your athletes, um, having an ownership group singularly focused on a particular club is the way to go. So, um, so yeah, so, so I, I think that we made that, that, that transition, we're making that transition at the right time. And I think if you look around the environment, I mean, the, 
you guys talk about it all the time, the amount of interest in women's sports right now, look at the valuations and the teams, what's happening in women's soccer, what's happening in the WNBA. You know, you had, uh, had uh, John Patrickoff on recently. Uh, I thought it was really interesting to hear, you know, the way they're thinking about the opportunity. Um, it used to be five or 10 years ago, I think that people might've uh, pursued opportunities in women's sports because it was the right thing to do. I think now there, there, there really is a business case to be made for it. So if you see Todd Boley bidding $25 million for an NWSL team and you see Michelle Kang over the top $35 million, fist pump out of you? You know, John Boynton says what when he sees those sort of valuations? Not your league, I understand, but women's sports in general. I would tell Mr. Boley, take it to 45. <laughs> I think it's, 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 it's undisputably a good thing because, again, women's sports have been considered kind of an unprofit, unprofitable backwater for too long. But if you look at the amount of interest from fans, I mean, at the end of the day, we're in an attention, we're, we're in an attention economy. And, you know, the amount of eyeballs, the amount of interest, the amount of engagement in women's sports from the fan side is really unbelievable. Um, you look at the sponsor and the partnership interest in women's sports, it's evolving so rapidly. And you look at, you know, what's going on in the broadcast side of things. Um, the pieces are all coming together. I don't think we're at the destination yet, but, you know, you know, you, I know you know Angela Ruggiero. Uh, Angela is a good friend of ours. Uh, and, um, you know, we're very supportive of the work she's done in the fan project, uh, which is attempting to bring data to prove that the opportunity in women's sports is real. Uh, so we take all that very seriously. We, we think the opportunity is there. I think one of the ways to, to kind of see that that oppor- the people that are in it see that that opportunity is there is when people who are already involved are willing to kind of up their investment. And Michelle Kang is a, is a co-owner of the Spirit already, willing to pay a, a vastly higher than ever seen before price for an NWSL franchise because she obviously believes in the business model. You guys are doing something very similar uh, in the PHF. The, the Board of Governors just recently announced a $25 million investment from all of you guys into the team to help fund salaries, to help fund a, a profit share of sorts for players, to help infrastructure travel, all those things, expanded schedule. That to me is always kind of an eye-opener. But when the people who are already involved in the business are willing to put more of their own money in, because as you say, they, they see a, a moment here that is worth capturing with a little bit more capital. Yeah, John, I would have done that a lot more succinctly. I would have said, you don't have to peek behind the curtain. You're already <laughs> behind the curtain. But I mean, Evan's four-minute you know, intro works too. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if there's a question there, but if you're kind of <laughs> shining light in the fact that we just announced a $25 million commitment, we're really trying to put the players first here. Um, and if, uh, you know, as we looked at what we were planning to do, again, we've got a team of owners that are very well aligned. Um, unlike some leagues where the owners really kind of, you know, you'll have rivalries and they're, they're kind of competing against each other. We all compete against each other on the ice, but uh, when it comes to sitting down at board of governor meetings, uh, we are highly supportive of each other and we recognize we've got to work together to make this happen. And so, um, as you said, the, the the transition has happened over the last 18 months, really. We brought in Ty Taminia, who was an executive from the baseball side of the world. Uh, she had run several teams for the goal playing group in the minor league baseball side of things. We don't think you know, we think there are a fair number of similarities actually between the fan experience you're trying to, to deliver at a minor league baseball game, which you're trying to do at a women's hockey game. These are very family oriented affairs. Um, it's about the hockey, but it's about a lot of other stuff that goes on as well. But um, in this case, uh, we felt it was really important to demonstrate our commitment to the players because at the end of the day, the players are the product. 
And we need to make sure that they know that we value them and that uh, we are ready to invest in them because we do see a, an, a, you know, a solid ROI in the future. One that you mentioned, John Patrickoff, who, who was on our show uh, last week, the, he mentioned that you know they, the way that they think about kind of cutting players into their leagues is a a twenty year profit share. Where if you play for one year, the next that year, and then the nineteen years after, you have a small piece of of that league's profit. You guys are doing something a little bit different: a ten percent equity pool controlled by players. Walk us through kind of what exactly that is, and 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 what was the motivation behind kind of that specific setup in terms of giving athletes uh, kind of a cut of of the growth of the league. Yeah. By, by the way, before you. Answer, John. Let me tell you, Alan Walsh, the agent for a lot of NHL stars. I mean, he's on Twitter today, as a matter of fact, saying, you know, with the with the growth in franchise valuations, and this is a call we heard from Michelle Roberts, the former executive director of the NBPA, that we've got to figure out a way. And when I say we, that is coming from the players' association standpoint. We've got to figure out a way where players can really be partners. If you're going to call each other partners, how can players share in the equity of the the important entity that is growing in valuation? I don't know if there's, that's such an easy thing to do in the big four or the big five sport, but you're proving that there is at least a path that's worth investigating. I mean, we're going to find out if it works, right? But I, I think, you know, if you think about every professional athlete, you know, very few of them actually transition into owners at the end of their careers, right? But I know it's something that many of them dream about, right? And, uh, and it, it's also interesting to look at the economics of, of, of team valuations, where you have teams that are worth a lot. But their profitability is actually not very high. And in certain cases, they even lose money, right? So if you're a player getting a, a share of profits, um, that's not necessarily worth as much as having a share of the franchise itself. And if you look back at you know the greats who, who, who paved the way for the modern NHL, guys like you know, Bobby Hull or Gordie Howe, you know, imagine if those guys you know, had had a small piece of the ownership, right? It, 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 it can really move the needle for them. And so... Um, we really are sticking our necks out by setting aside this block of ownership, but we think it's the fair thing to do. Um, and we also want to make sure that those pioneers, I mean, we've got some incredible players, incredible talent um, who are bending over backwards. They're, they're, they're working really hard to be the best hockey players they can be. We want to see them rewarded for it. The, the, the likelihood is that we're not going to have massive profits to show in the next few years. And in certain cases, you know, depending on when these players, you know, retire from the league, Maybe not before they retire, but if we can vest a small portion of ownership in their name, you know, that gives them the potential to, to, to really feel included and to feel the benefit for years to come. Mario Lemieux may be considered a trailblazer in that you yeah. saw how, how yeah, his deal worked with the out. Penguins. <laughs> they couldn't pay him. They were coming out of bankruptcy. So rather, you know, he took his salary. He said, all right, forget it. You don't have to pay me, but I'll take a little equity in the franchise recently sold to the folks at Fenway. And Mario did all right to the tune of 300 plus million dollars. I know. I love that story. Um, and I hope that we can have a bunch of Mario's in our future. It's great that the investment is being made and you're like, I'm not sure how, you know, in the future, we, we hope there's payoff. Can you, can you give me sort of, if I'm on a seesaw and I've got the revenue on one side and I've got the expenses on the other side, which way am I tilting? Is one crashing to the ground and, and how far away from sort of that stable, everything's, uh, you know, balanced nicely? Well, right now, the, the, the expenses are, are, are certainly heavier than the revenue. Um, but we, um, we have a, a, a model, a, a plan that suggests that within a few years, uh, they should be even. Um, I think the day that we'll actually start generating a lot of surplus income is probably well off into the future because uh, we have to pay these athletes more, right? So from a business model standpoint, the goal really is to get to break even. 
Um, and then as we continue to generate surpluses, that will in all likelihood go back into compensation, go back into benefits, go back into facilities, et cetera. Because uh, again, this, we're taking a very long view in terms of the investment horizon here because um, uh, to build something that's truly sustainable, um, 30, you know, and uh, as I think you guys know, the, the average salary next year will be $37,500. That is a huge increase from where we were two years ago, but it is not close to the destination. We've got to, we've got to continue powering forward. Yeah, you, you kind of made the, uh, the uh, comparison to minor league baseball. Uh, their ticket sales are extremely important in minor league sports. In, in the big league sports, you're looking at revenue and sponsorship and media as sort of the major revenue drivers. Where do you see the bucket being filled? Like, What are those drivers of, on the revenue side? Yeah, so, so, so we have all of the standard revenue streams of a typical professional sports league, right? So we've, we've got sponsorships, we've got gate, we've got merch, uh, we've got broadcast. Um, I think in the early days, sponsorships and broadcast are most important because given where we are from an evolution standpoint, uh, none of us owns our own arena yet, right? That will come in time. Uh, most of our teams play in arenas that seat anywhere from, I'm going to say 700 to 2,500 people. And we're still building up that, that, that attendance. Uh, it's been a real challenge during COVID. So, um, we just got involved prior to season five, which was last season, which was the COVID season. We ran a two week bubble at Lake Placid in that historic, uh, rink of, you know, of, of Miracle on Ice. Um, it was en- ended up being cut short because of COVID. Uh, so that was definitely a non-standard experience for our fans. Uh, this year, we're seeing good attendance, but again, you know, with with protocols changing, you know, up in Toronto, we're having challenges, you know, with with the province. Um, it's 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 challenging from a gate standpoint. So we hope that COVID settles down and we can get onto a more steady growth trajectory on the gate side of things. But in the meantime, um, you know, corporate partnerships and sponsorships are critical, and we've seen some really great partners step forward over the last eighteen months. Discover has been a great backer for us. We just announced uh, a big deal with Warrior, who's going to be the equipment supplier to the league. Um, we're doing some stuff at the team levels as well. Um, you know, up in Toronto, we've had some great success. We've done a, doing a major partnership with Athleta up there. So uh, a bunch of good sponsors coming forward and what we're seeing. And one of the reasons we were able to make this announcement now is because we're seeing the sponsors step up in a way that we haven't previously. And that gives us confidence that we can can you know can accelerate the plan a little bit. And what does that necessarily mean for for you as an investor moving forward? When when Major League Soccer launched, there were a few guys like the Hunt family and, and Anschutz that own multiple teams. I think everyone couldn't wait for the the opportunity for them to kind of divest a little bit and and settle on one. Is that the end result for you? Is it are you can you not wait for the day that you have one team instead of three? What do you think about your own involvement? It is kind of funny because Joanna's the chair for t- the Toronto Six. I'm the chair for the Riveters and our partner Miles is the chair for the Pride. So um, last weekend, the Riveters are playing the Pride. I could hardly talk to Miles the whole weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a little bit of rivalry going on. Good, uh, but, good. Um, By the way, the Six is awesome. The six and merch matters. Like if that could break through, I love the Six logo. It's fantastic. And for people who may not know, Toronto. And you notice, by, by the way, John, I don't say Toronto. I do it correctly. It's Toronto. You don't say that second T like Novi Williams might. That, that <laughs> It's referred to as the six. And that logo is just really one of my favorite logos in sports. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, it's, it's a great logo. And Toronto is a great city. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the, 
grow the growth and popularity of that team has been unbelievable. They didn't even play a home game last season because of COVID. They've had their first home games ever this season. We've had a huge turnout, huge fan support. It's really, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Um, but so what was the question you asked me? I was asking you if you, if, if I you do think that too. Owning, don't worry, John, I do that too. Oh, oh, okay. Three teams is the, is the long-term yeah. future. If you are looking to, to reach the, get this league to a point where it's easy to, un, to unload one or two of them. It's most definitely not the long-term future. Uh, we put a constitution in place prior to last season and recognizing that we're in a transitional phase here, we allowed individual ownership groups to have more than one team for a limited period of time. And so uh, the, the, the priority was to get the teams out of the original ownership group's hands into new owners. And so our group is called BTM Partners. BTM is really acting as foster parents for two teams right now. Right. And uh, so we're loving those teams. We're, we're, we're educating them. You know, we're treating them like, you know, children that we love, but at some point we're going to find a new family for them. Uh, someone who loves them just as much as we do and is going to take good care of them and ensure that they kind of have a, have a beautiful future. Let me ask the obvious then if I'm an NHL owner, does it not make sense from a business perspective to have an affiliation with a premier hockey federation team. I mean, all the synergies that one could bring uh, as, as well as then the, like you talked about the projected ROI in women's sports, the ability to capitalize. Is that too simplistic or, and are people raising their hands? That to me is so obvious. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I, I'm, I, I know I'm stupid, but I'm not dumb. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it makes a ton of sense, especially because um, what we're also seeing more broadly in sport is, you know, people building platforms, right? Um, you've got FSG is, you know, in multiple sports. You've got a bunch of these holding companies now that are acquiring multiple teams within their portfolios because they're seeing efficiency and leverage across those portfolios. So it makes a ton of sense. And I, and I think that it's, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but I, I think that that, I, I think that that is in our Oh, future. wait a minute, Evan, right here. I'm, I'm going to call it here. And I, you know, we're not allowed to take anything of value. And I think a jersey's probably exceeds the 25 buck limit here at Sportico. But, so, you know, John, if I connect you to Jerry Cardinal, who is an investor of FSG, and, and they wind up, Fenway winds up investing in the six, I want a gratis six t-shirt from my boy. How about that? Fair enough? Um, absolutely. And I'll get one for you and for your wife and, uh, and we'll even get Jerry and the whole team at Redbird can have one too. Oh, look at that right into Redbird. I think he knows. I I, I think I see where this may be going, Evan. How about you? I do. I do. I wanted to make sure before, before you go, uh, John, that we asked you about the Olympics, uh, right around the corner. There's no NHL players at the Olympics. I would imagine that means maybe a bigger spotlight on women's hockey than otherwise might have been there. Is this a critical time for you guys? How does the the Olympics and, and, and the spotlight there on women's hockey, how do you guys kind of capture that back at home moving forward? Yeah, so um, the timing of our announcement was not really um, a, a coincidence. Um, the spotlight shines on women's hockey every four years at the Olympics, unlike any other time, right? And too often, um, there's this huge surge of interest during the Olympics, and then the women's hockey world kind of goes to sleep. Uh, we want to make clear that uh, that there's women's hockey in everyone's future, even after the Olympics. And so we uh, we're excited to see the coverage that we know the games are going to bring. Um, I can't choose whether I want Team USA or Team Canada, but I'm pulling for both of them because we've got uh, teams on both sides of the border. 
but I know it's going to be some great hockey. And uh, and yes, the, the the lights will be shining bright on women's hockey. I think the staying power is is growing, almost like we are now, where you're getting a little bit more sunlight each day. You know, it's not a lot. But after the last, you know, like Kendall Coyne showed up at the NHL All-Star Game and participated in the, in the fastest skater race. Uh, uh, people know the Lamoureux sisters. Yeah, I, I think the, that the, the, the timeline and the attention span for women's hockey is growing longer past the Olympics. I, it, and I have no data to support that. It's just anecdotal. And I, do you see the same thing? I do see that. And I think that there are a lot of people, um, the NHL among them, who want to see women's professional hockey succeed. Um, so, um, so yeah, so Kendall showing up and skating at that event was great. Uh, we had two of our players at the ECHL all-star game just last weekend, uh, did a similar thing. Um, that was great. They actually played in the game itself. Um, you see a lot of people who want to make this happen. So again, as we read the signs and, and, and kind of tried to decide whether this was the time to make this announcement, we see so much support for women's hockey. And uh, one of the things that's, that's been challenging, frankly, and, and I'll bring Angela Ruggiero back into the conversation, uh, she told me that after her first Olympics in 1998, they all came back and imagined that there was going to be a professional league waiting for them to pay them what they, believe, that what they believe they deserve and to allow them to continue playing in those off cycles. It wasn't there. And as she put it to me just a month ago, here we are 22 years later and we still aren't there. Well, we believe this announcement is a giant step in that direction. We want all those women playing in the Olympics who aren't yet playing in our league to know that there is more hockey in their future, that they can come back from that experience, have a place to play, and uh, hopefully, you know, be able to live out their dreams. John, you, you've been so gracious with your time. Even so, can, can I let you go by trying to get you in trouble? Is that fun? Can I do that? <laughs> I'm going to ask your permission. Yes. Can, I, can I try? Uh, I see these videos of Vladimir Putin playing hockey. And, you know, far be it from me who watches AAA hockey on a regular basis, albeit 12-year-olds, where the kids are whizzing around the ice pretty good. You know, the president doesn't seem to be that great a skater or player. That said, Putin seems to score seven or eight goals a game every time he steps on the ice. Like, I'm asking you, is he that good? Or perhaps are the other goalies and defenders not really going all out when he's somewhere near the crease? So, Scott, I'm the, uh, the chairman of the largest technology company. <laughs> the so I'm going to say he he's is that, that good. good. <laughs> he Absolutely. Is, he is that good. All right, John Point, an investor, three of the six Premier Hockey Federation teams. But thanks so much, John. We really do appreciate it. This is a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. Eben, uh, you know, I, I love hockey. You know that, men's hockey, women's hockey. I'm still not buying John's point that, you know, President Putin is, you know, sort of the uh, Pavel Bure of presidents uh, because, you know, I'm watching him out there. I understand why he's got to say it. Yeah. But, you know, he, he's left open in front of the net. I got to say, it's not like he's, he's going bar down. You know, it's a soft shot on goal, and the goalie somehow lets it go five holes. So I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm not convinced he's that great a player. A very judicious answer there at the end uh, from, from John Boynton. Uh, and a really good a really good interview there, Scott. I'm really interesting to hear how, uh, again, to, 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 to see that the people who are invested in women's sports are, are really 
opening their wallets and, and doubling or, or tripling down as we as we did at the open, I think really tells you a lot about the way in which uh, this industry and, and the way in which people who, who have their money in it already have a stake in the game really are, are, are open to, to investing more. Should I send should I send my kid to go billet with him? You know, maybe path to Harvard, the future path to Harvard hockey. Are we good? Like just go send him for a billet at the Pointon House? I think I, yeah. <laughs> I'm just That's gonna for John. John won't know it yet. John won't know he's coming. I'm just gonna knock on the door and you know, sort of just leave him. Chat, it shows up with the Xbox. <laughs> Xbox hockey. Ready to bag. play. Yeah, Xbox hockey bag, two sticks. We're good. John, you there can you do go. the rest. All right. He is Edmund Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnik on Twitter at Soshnik. By the way, we always want to say thanks to our producer, Matt Whitehurst. You know, we, we, we do always want to do that. We have forgotten, but he does a, a great job. Social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves when I remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become, little tweak coming, the Sportico Media Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.